This is the new Criterion. I'm James Pinero, executive editor. The old master dealer, writer, and philanthropist Eugene V. Thaw died on the third day of January 2018 at the age of 90. At the time, the exhibition Drawn to Greatness, Master Drawings from the Thaw Collection, was in its final days at the Morgan Library. The correspondence of these two occurrences seemed profound. The range of master work in the Morgan's exhibition of 150 drawings was stunning. Rubens and Rembrandt, Goya and Ang, Turner and Friedrich, Redon and Degas, Cezanne and Van Gogh, Matisse and Picasso, on up through Jackson Pollock, for whom Thaw was the author of the catalogue resume. Yet what was all the more remarkable about this survey, a capstone of over 40 years of his donations to the Morgan, was that Thaw, a self-made dealer, had collected these magnificent drawings on his own in our lifetime. According to his obituary in the New York Times, it was the suggestion of his wife, Claire, that Jean, as a dealer, hold on to the drawings he most liked, giving them over in turn to the great institution of the Morgan. The art conservator Marco Grassi knew Jean and offered to write a remembrance for our pages. E. V. Thaw, 1927-2018, appears in the February issue of the New Criterion. Thaw himself was a valued contributor to the New Criterion, starting with our very first issue of September 1982, where he wrote a review of The Paintings of Arshad Gorky by Jim Jordan and Robert Goldwater. Marco Grassi has been associated with the New Criterion for nearly as long. He started writing for our pages in December 2003. This essay is his 54th for the magazine, and it is my pleasure to join him in his Upper East Side home, office, and conservation studio today. Marco, welcome. Thank you, James. Marco, to start, you have offered to read an excerpt of your essay. And once again, this is Marco Grassi reading from E.V. Thaw, 1927-2018, his tribute for the February 2018 issue of The New Criterion. Though not a scholar himself, Thaw thoroughly understood the value of academic art history in resolving issues of attribution, provenance, and iconography. He maintained a close personal working relationship with most leading specialists, but ultimately his decisions remained true to his remarkably perceptive instinct, or I, that God-given gift of intuition that needs to be nurtured cultivated and continually tested vis-à-vis the art object itself. That Thaw could use this precious tool in judging material as diverse as Renaissance drawings, Impressionist paintings, and Native American artifacts, just to mention a few of his collecting interests, epitomizes the very ideal of connoisseurship. The cornerstone of Saul's legacy as a collector will remain the spectacular group of more than 400 drawings bequeathed to the Morgan Library over the years on behalf of himself and his wife, Claire Edithor. Roughly half of that number have recently been exhibited there together and published in a handsome scholarly catalogue. Not surprisingly, a number of the Thor sheets are deemed superior to the museum's other holdings in the field, and the group, as a whole, is considered the institution's single most important accession since its founding. 
unlike most long-active dealers and collectors, Saul rarely carped about the scarcity of first-class material compared to the good old days. He simply sought out items he knew to be masterworks in different, less frequented fields. A visit to Saul's premises was a required ritual for anyone seriously involved in the visual arts from the mid-1960s onwards. During these decades, he occupied several venues, none of which could be described as a gallery. The last two were residential apartments on Park Avenue, where the visitor would be greeted in the conventionally yet elegantly appointed living room or library. Only the object of the client's interest would be displayed, enhancing the item's singularity. This was consistent with Thaw's belief that what he called the Gestalt first impression was of capital importance in how works of art are perceived and ultimately judged. Thaw was masterful at describing whatever he was showing, always enriching his presentations with illuminating observations about an item's aesthetic appeal, yet never foregoing the carefully researched details of its historical significance. These were typically intense one-on-one sessions that unfolded in the harsh privacy. Needless to say, the recent proliferation of the art fair was an incomprehensible phenomenon to Saw. Its evident success in selling material, even at the highest level of value and importance, appeared to negate many of the traditional conventions, discretion, exclusivity, and prudence, that seemingly forever had guided the way art was bought and sold. Unfortunately, Thaw has left a very sparse written record of the principle that guided his aesthetic as well as his cultural endeavors. What we know of these survived chiefly in the recollections of colleagues, collaborators, and friends, and his impressive catalog resume of Jackson Pollock, and in these pages, where he published essays on eight different occasions in the New Criterion, starting with the very first issue in September 1982. They provide a revealing personal perspective on the subject of connoisseurship at a time when this concept of intuitive critical perception is rapidly losing its credentials. Phrases such as end of an era or last of the scholarly dealers might unfortunately turn out to be all too true. Marco, thank you so much. I want to return to something you mentioned up front, the eye. Jean Thaw said that great art collecting need not be based on a great fortune. Education, experience, and eye are most important. The question of the eye of connoisseurship is a subject that you have often written about for us. It was a subject of your very first essay called In the Kitchen of Art. The eye would seem to be an important organ for anyone interested in art, but what did the eye mean to Jean Thaw? Uh, I think probably uh, he understood the idea uh, more or less the way it's generally perceived of in the visual arts. In other words, it, it really refers to a particularly keen sensitivity to visual stimuli. And uh, not unlike when you speak of some musician having an ear or even better, perfect pitch. These are gifts that certain people have and others do not. 
So it's very difficult to categorize or um, create a scheme for when we say someone have an eye, but the result is always the same. Someone with a sensitivity to perceive quality and discern uh, often authorship and uh, value in visual in visual works of art and works of visual art. When you talk about perfect pitch, you feel like that's something that people are usually born with or they're not. You can't teach perfect pitch. Do you find it's the same with the eye? Is it something that can be trained or is it often that people are born with it or they're not? I I think probably it's probably more akin to the concept of of perfect pitch. In other words, you are absolutely born with it, the so-called eye. But once, once it's it's there, there's no question that it must be trained and it must be, uh, must be exercised. And, and as I mentioned, I think, in my uh, piece, it must be constantly um, compared and controlled against what you're really seeing so that uh, uh, it's, it's, it's not infallible, of course, but it needs it needs training and it needs nurturing. Well, along those lines, there have been an abundance of great drawing shows this season, starting with Carmen Bombach's Michelangelo Divine Draftsman and Leonardo to Matisse Master Drawings from the Robert Lehman Collection, both of the Metropolitan. What distinguishes Jean's collection now permanently at the Morgan? I would say... Uh, quality, certainly. Uh, he, in other words, um, picked things that, uh, for in their category, um, showed a higher level of um, engagement by the artist. In other words, the sheet uh, was more fully developed, the concept of the image was more completely realized, and the touch was more uh, sensitive and uh, vigorous. Uh, so that within the same artist, he could discern the difference in, uh, in level of quality of the several drawings by the same artist. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder if you could tell us a little more about Jean Thaw, the person. How did you know him? Uh, I met him uh, through uh, a man called Rudy Heinemann, uh, who is now, of course, long dead, but was for many years a sort of eminence grise in the market here in New York. Uh, he was a silent partner, particularly of the firm of Nerdlers, when Nerdlers was still very much involved with European old master paintings. Uh, he worked closely with Agnews in London. Uh, he was uh, a German uh, man, uh, rather obese and of, of rather fiercely ugly, uh, but with a very, very intense uh, eye, again. In other words, he um, really did have perception, uh, especially in the field of European painting. And because of that, and his astute, uh, in a way, politics in the field, 
was able to um, play a, a very important role in virtually all major transactions in the field in the 50s and 60s. Could someone ever do what Gene Thaw did, but starting today? Are such drawings even still available in the marketplace? Uh, I think that uh, I think that certainly uh, no. I think that uh, uh, that would be very difficult. In other words, the, uh, uh, the, the 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 reservoir of material of first class material is clearly dwindling. Uh, so much material is going into public institutions uh, and is therefore no longer available. And so the answer is that, unfortunately, it would be quite impossible Mm -hmm. today. One subject you write about for us is forgery. And as I mentioned to our listeners, we're sitting in your conservation studio and you have a Madonna and Child on panel over there. Do you want to just tell us the story of this uh, Madonna and why you keep it there? <laughs> That's a very long story. But I will just simply say that I hang it there because it is a sort of memento mori for me. In other words, it's, it's a reminder uh, that um, we can all be fooled. Mm-hmm. And uh, this picture fooled me, which it should never have because early Italian pictures, this is a mock Sienese, uh, 13th century, uh, late 13th century painting, and I should have been able to identify it as a modern uh, con- contraption. But um, I was blinded, as uh, anyone can be, and uh, the painting itself has a rather long and amusing story that I think is a little bit too too long to recount here, but. Uh, let's say it's a painting for which I certainly fell. A number of great experts fell, including at that time the world expert on Sienese early painting. And uh, it was even, uh, thank goodness, not paid for, but bought by the Getty uh, at one point. Uh, they were enthusiastic about it. So it's about as good a forgery as it as is possible to be. And uh, when it, I was had an opportunity to purchase it, um, I did so enthusiastically because I loved the the idea that uh, something like this could still be made uh, eight hundred years or six hundred years after the fact. Well, it would certainly fool anybody who saw it. Uh, who made this forgery in the end? It's a, it's a, it's a, actually a very famous uh, forger active in Siena in the 1910s and 1920s, called Yoni. Yoni is a famous name in our field, and a lot of material that he produced is instantly recognizable. But like like many artists, he was an artist, there are good days and bad days. And so this was something that he did on an especially good day. In your full essay for us, you criticized the recent attention lavished on Leonardo's Salvator Mundi, which sold at auction in November for, I still can't believe it, $450 million. Is this, in fact, not a good time for old masters? I don't think that that episode is any measure of what the market is, because it was an episode totally, in a way, abstract on its own. And uh, 
I don't think it, it really signifies anything except one very important fact, and that is that the name recognition and uh, the branding of that object made it irresistible to an entire group of people, and there are many today, who are billionaires and um, simply see things in terms of being trophies of their success. So I don't think the picture and the, uh, the object has anything really to do with art, uh, even though it is, I think, unquestionably by Leonardo. But uh, it has much more to do with our uh, fixation with, uh, with, with the name, with the identity and the recognizability of, uh, of, of the name. You might say the ear, not the eye. Yeah, in this case, the ear. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, speaking of which, you have been listening to the New Criterion podcast, available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at newcriterion.com. I'm James Pinero. My guest today is Marco Grassi. Marco's latest essay, E.V. Thaw, 1927 to 2018, appears in the February 2018 issue of the New Criterion. Marco, it is always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, James.